This episode is brought to you by SoftLayer, an IBM company. If you're an entrepreneur, SoftLayer has created an incredible program just for you. It's called Catalyst. Catalyst offers amazing perks to you and your company, including credits to use their servers, mentorship, connections, and marketing support. To find out more, visit softlayer.com slash catalyst. Again, that's softlayer.com slash catalyst to find out more about this amazing program. This week, we wanted to do something a little bit different. Instead of choosing a topic and discussing it, we let the blogosphere do that for us. We each picked an article that we wanted to discuss and broke it down for you, the listener. The first article features a goal-setting app called Everest. In 2012, Everest was all the hype, but just two short years later, the company failed. This article is the founder's postmortem on why that happened. The second article we chose was all about the growth and traction of Expensify, an expense tracking app. The article outlines the specifics on how the company doubled their user base in six months. We also sat down with Nick Moran, general partner from Newstack Ventures in Chicago and host of the popular podcast, The Full Ratchet. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside, your look at the startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And there's no Paul Jarrett. <laughs> no, no. He's out this week. He's uh, working the good life, has he? Running it. Yeah. Actually, not running it, but running it. Yeah. <laughs> so congrats to all the people that finished the race Yeah, that uh, was huge, today. huge. I think like 7,000 people or something. Came out to run so a half marathon to, here in Lincoln. Congrats to Blue Box and everybody involved in that. That was a pretty awesome thing. Um, so yeah, we, we just want to get right into it. We have a couple articles that we we bro- both kind of brought to the table and, and we're just going to kind of introduce those. And then, uh, you know, at the end of this episode, we'll, if you look at the description, you'll see, we'll put the articles in the description itself so you can kind of read along with us. But uh, Brian, what, what article did you bring this week? So if you follow the IO podcast on Twitter, you know that we post out a lot of Interesting articles, everything from tactical stuff to uh, kind of more fluff stuff. But this is an article we posted a week or two ago that really caught our interest. And it uh, talks about uh, the product Everest. It's a mobile app. I never used that. I don't know. I actually downloaded and played around with it a little bit. But they started in uh, December 2012. And uh, this was an article posted on Product Hunt and in their blog. And it's not often you get to see kind of the the inside uh, insights from the founders after the fact that their company went belly up. Yeah. You know, so 24 months later after Everest launched. Did, did it have a, high, a similar hype to like Mailbox or something? Along it did. Lines? It had a lot of hype when it first came out. How a that, lot of people used it. Weird. Um, and then they go that? through in the article kind of what they did right and what they did wrong. So what we thought we could do is go through this um, article and talk a little bit about, you know, what are we seeing and see. Just some of the points that... Um, you know, uh, the article kind of outlines and maybe parallel some of our experiences with that. Yeah. So they started out with the article talking about what went right. And, you know, obviously it's easy to see at the early stages, some of the things that get you some early traction. Yeah. Um, they said that one of the things they really focused on at the very beginning was design. And we see that a lot where companies that don't do well, you know, a lot of times it's because they don't really design and consideration and not just the design, the prettiness of the, the app. And it's, and it's interesting because you see some of the, um, you know, Y Combinator is notorious for just not focusing on design at all. 
um, versus 500 startups, they, they primarily focus on UI and, and, and branding and design and all that kind of stuff. So they, and the reason they said they, they placed a high value on it and they think that it paid off. And one of the reasons why it was kind of the, the good part of what they did was it gave them a little bit of, um, traction. They weren't in the Valley. Yeah. So it gave them exposure. So when they sent their pitch deck out, it was, you know, very well designed. The, the app itself looked good or the prototype. And that gave them a, a, at least a fighting chance to have other conversations. Yeah. So I think that's where design can really come into play. I think you can certainly over-design your product at the early stage. But yeah. if you look at design as a tool to get you further conversations, I think that's a, a positive well, step. Well, I mean, if you go along the thesis of design being that a lot of times design is removal and not just simply addition, mm-hmm. um, then that kind of falls in line with, with a, you know, your MVP can still function incredibly well and be very, very straightforward without having a ton of bloat and a ton of like uh, creep, scope creep and all that right. kind of thing. And that's one of the things when they, as they built the product out and that they still kept a high level of design, but what they found as because of that importance of the design, they ended up doing things like they focused on design almost too much in the yeah. MVP so that it took them longer to get uh, a product out. And they focus on things that really weren't important to the user. Yeah. You know, the over, yeah. over emphasis on design actually got them, got them uh, some bad points as well. So I think it can be double edged sword. It can definitely get you some early traction. It seemed like they were thinking more about design as aesthetic and not design as function. And they were, they were, you know, on the aesthetic side, they made it look really, really good. Um, but they were just adding tons and tons of features as well. And not, not kind of wrangling in both sides of design from the functionality standpoint, but also the, the UI and the, the niceties of the, the look. And they talked about that. Basically the, the biggest thing that they thought that they did wrong was they built what they thought was an MVP, but it took them basically a year to get that MVP out. And so clearly it was chock full of nice to have types of features versus yeah. I have to have these kind of features. We need, to, we need to get this founder on the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would love to hear her perspective on, on um, what happened as well. And so one of the things they talked about, they you know really should have talked about subtracting features rather than trying to add it. They hadn't figured out exactly what the solution was for the for the customer. You know they had experimented a number of things, and I suppose we should back up and talk a little bit about the app if you're not familiar with it. The idea was to help uh, an individual kind of track their goals and and get to Everest. You know, so if you wanted to run a, a marathon, it, it broke your goals into simple steps and it and get, got you cheerleaders and it got you actually was going through it. I was reading this description and, and it kind of made me want to use this thing because a lot of times, <laughs> you know, I've tried, you know, what I, what I feel like is every goal setting app in the world. And what it doesn't do is kind of reward you in a, in a really meaningful way. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do a really good job of kind of, um, getting you through the lulls of your goal. It, I mean, it's like good for the, like the highest level. Like I'm setting a goal. I'm kind of moving forward with it, but not, you know, now that you've been doing this for three weeks, what is going to make you not, or what is going to make you come back to this goal and keep thinking about it? Right. And that's what they found is the, the users, once they got stuck, they didn't nail that experience, right? Yeah, they, they may come back six months later to try a different goal or something, but it was yeah. very difficult to change that user behavior. And I think that's a good point is, you know, technology is great, but at the end of the day, these are people that you're dealing with and people don't like change for the most part. Uh, It's very difficult to get somebody to change their behavior, to get them to use a different approach, a different process, unless it's, you know, dead simple or super valuable. And I think that's one of the the things that people have to really think about. 
So some of the other things they talked about, obviously, uh, their burn rate was too high. I think this is one of the uh, things that early stage companies, once they get that first funding, um, you know, how much should they be spending? They were clearly spending too much on. I think they said um, 90000 a month. 90000 to $100,000 How much did they raised? I don't know what their numbers were for. It's probably something yeah, similar to a seed raise. I mean, one, one to $3 million probably along that line. But they're in San Francisco. Uh, you know, yeah. they added a number of different bloated developers and that to the team. Um, they, one of the keys to, they said that to, uh, or, or the, the bad things about what they did was they actually located the company in the Presidio rather than kind of in, in Somo or where the other, uh, kind of key tech startups were. And they said that was one of the key driving things. They thought that they could place, they could pick a place that was kind of outside and they could keep their heads down and keep building. What they found was it really took them out of the ecosystem. So it took them a longer to um, this meet is, people, have too many meetings and things yeah. along those lines where it is a really fine balance between being in that density yeah. of, of that ability to run into a founder, run into a uh, somebody you need versus having a place where you can go and, and be heads down and work. It's really interesting to me that they were in San Francisco. Um, they, they, they were in the, like the heart of where a lot of this stuff is happening, yet they weren't in the right neighborhood. And they cited that as one of the failures where... Um, I, I don't know what, what my takeaway from that is, but just from, from a perspective of building in, you know, whether you're in Lincoln or Omaha or you're in Kansas city or Atlanta. Well, I think, I mean, location has a, an important factor. I think that's the reason why a lot of companies do go out to the Valley. It's because you have this density of, of founders and startups and that, but even there you have to look at these micro ecosystems or yeah. places where your people are, uh, where are you going to run into the right talent? Um, even things like getting across town for a meeting. And if that adds up over time, and their customers aren't there. Or those are the factors that come into um, play as far as where you should put your company. So you in. just have to be super intentional about where you, where you are, regardless of whether you're in San Francisco or Chicago or whatever. Uh, positioning yourself with uh, you know in close proximity with people who are actually in the same mentality as you. Right. That's really interesting. So you know, I guess to kind of wrap up uh, with the article, they you know they, some of the main things that they said. Uh, you know, first make it easy then make it fast and then make it pretty. That was yeah. kind of their, their uh, mistake. They kind of went in reverse order. They made it pretty. Uh, they didn't get to it fast enough and, and, you know, making it easy is very, very hard to do. So I, th- I think one of the things that I took away was like they, they mentioned that, um, that you should focus on one, one single problem, one single thing, uh, and solve that extremely well and then move on. And I think a lot of, a lot of companies, they, they had this idea. I mean, so the thing, the nature of a founder, you're, you're, you're crazy ambitious, right? Uh, and whenever you start a company and you finally decide to make that leap, all things are possible. You're not, there's nothing that's not within your grasp, right? right? You can build or do whatever yeah, you, you want can do anything. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, it's very, very important to temper. And they mentioned this as well. It's very important to temper that mentality with a, a very keen focus on one single problem and, and you can be as ambitious as you want, but focus on one thing, do that extremely well and then move on from there. Yeah. You have to nail that first thing. Yeah. And just double, you know, once you do see a success with that one problem, you can and, double down and, and do other things and be problem oriented. You actually solve a problem. Don't, yeah. At the end of the day, again, people will come back to your app, your business, if you are solving some pain point and some problem point. They actually stated that they didn't uh, validate enough. So yeah, they, 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 the gave, yep. they gave props to Steve Blank and they said like, uh, you know, get out of the building, go talk to people, go and do, and we emphasize that a lot um, with a lot of the startups that we see, but we can't emphasize that enough to you guys listening. Um, well, looking at, 
you know, from an accelerator perspective, we talked to a lot of accelerators and, and uh, talked to a lot of people who've gone through accelerators. Um, I was just out at the Global Accelerator Network's Managing Directors Conference, and that was one of the hot topics is like, what are some of the feed, what's kind of the feedback that you're getting from, from your teams that are going through? And, and most of the teams, uh, the number one reason or number one aspect that they said they wish they got more out of the accelerators, they wish they would have done more customer validation before Absolutely. they kept going forward. And yeah. If, if teams are saying that after the fact, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, something to pay attention to. So get out of the building. This episode is brought to you by SoftLayer, an IBM company. Hey, this is Rich Malloy from SoftLayer, an IBM company. We're a big server company. We have a program for startups called Catalyst, where we give you credits to use our servers, offer you mentorship and connections. If you're fundraising, at some point, you'll have to take your show on the road and visit ecosystems like San Francisco or New York. We sat down with Rich Malloy from SoftLayer to hear his thoughts on the Startup Roadshow. A big thing that I hear from companies all over the U.S. is that there's not enough capital in their community. And that's not a problem. In fact, that's not your problem. Well, your, your job is to build a great company and then take your show on the road to go raise money. Everybody has to go to San Francisco or New York or both to raise capital. So just get ready for that. The things that you can do in order to make sure that you are going to set yourself up for success is make contacts, ask for introductions for those cities, and then set money aside in your budget to go and travel out to San Francisco to attend events, to meet people, to meet VCs, and to start pitching. It's not going to happen on one trip, so make sure that you're setting up a few different trips back-to-back and you're planning out an entire week or a few days of events. And now back to the show. Uh, I want to highlight a little bit, we can move on from this article. I want to talk about the next article, which is, uh, this is on Medium. I'll post it in the, in the uh, description as well. Basically this article outlines a lot of key thinkings from their founder and, and how they have, um, the actual title of the article is Expensify CEO on the tactics that doubled its customer base in just six months. Um, and I, I will admit this article is a hodgepodge of just, it's almost like somebody just took knowledge and threw up on a page um, <laughs> and then shook it around a little bit and then, you know, <laughs> did that kind of thing. But it turned out so well. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are just some incredible quotes and nuggets that, that, um, that I, I would recommend you going through this article with a fine tooth comb because it's kind of, it's kind of deep and, and it's very um, tangential, but um, it's worth it. So I mean, I, we can go through the article a little bit. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say one of the things I liked about the article is it, it tried to um, demyth or debunk some of yeah, the myths yeah. out there yep. um, with regard to traction. And I think that's one of the things when you start reading these articles and how-to articles of how do I get traction, how do I double my number of users in two months or whatever. Yeah, you have to be very careful of you know when were those writ- uh, articles written, who are they written by. Yep. It, half the time or a lot of times those same tactics are are not going to be relevant to your particular startup. So while they're interesting to read, they're not necessarily a uh, blueprint or exact map that you can follow. Yeah. And that's what this article talks about or what resonated to me. It's like, here's some things that we think are common wisdom or best practices, but they didn't work and, or they didn't use them at Expensify. And because they didn't use them, they had you know, extraordinary growth. Right. Right. And, and a lot of the thinking here is uh, very contrarian. Um, I, I was even reading through some of the stuff and it, and it kind of like shook me a little bit. I was like, Whoa, like that, that's something that I didn't really think about. Uh, and I'll just go through some stuff. So 
basically that he talked a lot about organization structure and how a lot of the, the different trends from over the past decades, uh, organ, organization structure and, and, and specifically in relation to customer acquisition, a lot of this is based on customer acquisition. Um, but organization structure, as far as like create, he, he kind of argues against the premise of, you know, uh, sales is sales and sales kind of does its function and, and marketing does its function and, and marketing is solely, uh, responsible for customer acquisition and this kind of stuff. Um, and, and I wrote this down, build an incredibly well integrated internal machine. And then I, and then I put in quotes, uh, coders should understand marketing, uh, sales should understand a little bit of development, that kind of stuff. And as a, as a marketing guy, I, you know, you often read a lot of these technology companies say, well, marketing is not important. And, and it's like, you know, it's a red flag from, from yeah. that uh, is often raised on my, on my side, you know, just because you can build a great product that may or may not go viral doesn't mean you shouldn't be focused on, you know, actually marketing the product and telling yeah. the story and getting, getting the story out there. Uh, and that's what marketing really does is help, you know, develop those channels and develop those com- communications and having it be part of the integrated approach where your marketing, your sales and that are all going in the same direction, I think obviously would help uh, with your increased customer acquisition. He, he actually, so, um, if you, if you think about data, I want to talk about data a little bit because he covered data uh, pretty in depth. Um, he, he said specifically, you know, for, first of all, if, if you're just getting into startups and you, you want to think about data, uh, you will find out in a startup data is coveted. Everybody loves data. Everybody looks at the data. Everybody lives by the data, right? Uh, well, this post was almost, and this goes back to the contrarian thing, this post was really contrarian to the idea of data in a startup. Um, he, he he says that data is useful, but whenever you're starting out, uh, you're not going to have statistical significant data to drive decisions. Right. So he, he really wanted to emphasize the idea that kind of that muscle that is like uh, creating uh, or bringing forth ideas out of your gut. Yeah. He, he wanted to talk about how that is like really the important mechanism in making big decisions. Um, and I wrote down a couple of points here as well. So don't make the big decision on data that is not st- statistically significant. Early data isn't super helpful because there's not a lot of it. And then I've got a quote here from, from him directly from this uh, article. Uh, you don't have enough users to draw any meaningful conclusions. And even if you did, those users, users aren't necessarily representative of your long-term audience, target audience. Uh, you've got data, sure, but not enough to make a genuine data-driven decision. And pretending otherwise is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And that's just crazy insightful. I think that a lot of startups they they make that that uh, you know that they lynch all of their decisions on that one piece of data. And in reality, it's probably not even significant. Yeah, I, uh, we talked to a lot of early startups that immediately want to put in their Google Analytics and things along, along those lines. And you know, this is before they have customers at all. Yeah, it's like. Before you can, you know, measure if you're if you're going up and to the right, you know, talk to those first hundred people that actually buy from you. You know, that's your metric. Actually, having a conversation with those people that buy and, and trying to understand, you know, why do they buy? Where do they come from? Those kind of things are probably much more valuable than uh, checking a tick box and saying, oh yeah, we our, our numbers went from one to two this last week. Yep. A couple of another quote. Uh, so nobody ever got fired for waiting for more data before acting. Um, he, he was t- essentially talking about how people use data as a crutch to not really execute on anything. So could, because we're waiting for data, we're ra- right. waiting for the right data, right? So we've got to get this data before we can make a decision to move forward. But in reality, you're probably doing the wrong thing. You're probably waiting on data that shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be that doing that. That wouldn't be valuable anyway. Right. Or, or 
insightful. If you wait for the data, someone else will execute first. Uh, that's just kind of, uh, so he said, uh, basically demote data in the early stage and get gutsy. That's what he says. Uh, and then he, you know, he kind you of, know, goes, I would say once, once you have a proven track record, you've got kind of product market fit yeah. where you have, you know, a funnel of data coming in and it's, and you've proved it out over a couple of years and you've made decisions on your business based on that. Um, then it's much more valuable, I would say, uh, on how do you optimize that and how do you, you know, you move forward from that. And that, again, that could be three years into your journey. It could be six months into your journey, depending how fast you can get to that particular spot. But, um, I think the, the key out of this is to, to think about data don't just use it as, as the gospel and move forward. Yeah. He, he covered it. I mean, there's so much in this article. It's like, again, it's like he just kind of spat out a, a 10 million thoughts and, and, you know, but, but every thought is like a gem. So I would recommend again, go read this article. Um, he talked about onboarding a little bit. So the idea that the first experience somebody has in your, in your app or your product, what is that experience and how do you guide them through understanding what you're doing here? And what is the first action they can do in that kind of stuff? And, you know, it usually manifests itself in some sort of like, you know, the earliest manifestation that I can remember is Clippy. <laughs> so that's, that was <laughs> yeah. user onboarding. Like Clippy right. comes up and says like, okay, how can I help you today? Yeah. Uh, but you know, that, that kind of thing, even in SaaS applications happens all the time. I mean, you have a little thing that says step one and we usually click through them. Yeah, I think um, a lot of a lot of early stage stunt companies, especially like mobile apps, you see, they immediately want to dr- dump the user into this this tutorial. So the first time you launch the app, it tries to show you every single feature and kind of give you a guidebook to kind of give you a lay of the land. Mm-hmm. But I think what actually happens when you do that is oftentimes you confuse the user and or don't get them to the reason why they uh, wanted to use your app in the first place. So I think it's much more valuable to if you're going to, from, from an onboarding perspective is to look at what's that main thing they're coming to use you for and what's the problem they're trying to solve and get them into using that or doing that the first time as quick as possible. Then you can come back with, you know, an email that says, Hey, have you looked at this future feature that we have included? Um, or something else rather than trying to onboard the entire kitchen sink of, of your process and experience. Yeah. And he talks about kind of the role of email. And, you know, onboarding is also these, these kind of system emails, the drip campaign that you send, that your system sends out on a regular basis. And you design that to kind of get the highest uh, click through rate and that kind of stuff. Um, he was talking about how essentially he created, basically they did not go with any of the, the mandrills or the MailChimps or whatever that's built into your system. And it kind of fires these drip campaigns and they kind of custom rolled this email themselves. They, They built this whole system. And he said that, what that allowed that their system to do is be very contextual and also very quick about sending these emails. So it knows that you logged in the first time ever, right? Mm-hmm. And then within uh, 30 minutes, he said that, that these emails fired off. And um, he kind of laid out a few, re- a few reasons. He said that this, the, this very specific email is the industry standards, like less than 1% click through mm-hmm. their, their uh, click through rate is 12%. Right. And he, 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 and it was a text email that was from the CEO, from the CEO. And he said that the reason, so it's actually like almost like handwritten and like crappy. Yeah. It was a run on sentence. Run on (laughs) sentence. Just like really. And he said that the reason is, is because this makes it feel like it's, even though it's not, it's coming directly from the CEO. And, and a lot of people were just like, he said that the average, the standard response is, I know this probably isn't from the CEO, but dot, 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 just in case it is, here's what I think. (laughs) Um, and here's what he, here's what he said about that. I want to follow up with a quote. He said, 
It wouldn't be an overstatement to say that this single email was the difference between success and failure for uh, Expensify. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things that need to go right. And this is just one of them. But had I not done this, I don't think I would have learned nearly enough fast enough to do something about it. So, you know, this just comes down to the importance of onboarding and and think about uh, context in your onboarding. Think about where the user is, how fast you can deliver the message to them and that kind of thing. Well, I think one reason why it was valuable is it it gave the the end user an opportunity to give some feedback immediately. So I, I would imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine he got more feedback using that particular methodology than, you know, just the standard, you know, um, send grid kind of uh, response and says, you know, thanks for signing up. Here's a link to click or something along, along those lines. Yeah. So, I mean, we got these two articles, uh, look down in the description. You can read along with us. Uh, the Everest was the app that you said, the goal setting app we want to read. So that was an amazing article about how they, uh, they kind of broke down, I, I guess, in postmortem fashion, their failure for everybody to kind of digest and, and learn from. That was on product hunt. And the, uh, name of the article was the rise and fall of Everest, the app. Yeah. And then, uh, so then expensify how they doubled their, their user, uh, their user base in, in basically six months and in the very scientific, but also sporadic nature of their, their CEOs thinking and, and, and how we can all take, take away from that. So go read the articles and, uh, send us your thoughts. Let us know what other articles you're seeing out there that are, are getting you to think a little bit more. Absolutely. The ecosystem might be much more evolved in the valley, but the traditional barriers to startup acceleration have come down significantly. This is Nick Moran, amazing general partner from the Chicago-based Newstack Ventures and host of the popular podcast about the art of startup investing, The Full Ratchet. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the on the program, uh, Nick. Um, Nick Moran, you're the general partner at Newstack Ventures and founder and host of The Full Ratchet, which is a podcast I really enjoy. It's a podcast about the ins and outs of angel investing. So we're really excited to have you on the show today. Um, if you could start off maybe telling a little bit about your background and interest and uh, how did you get into investing and, and why did you start a podcast? Yeah, thanks for having me on the program, Brian. So my background, I worked for a large conglomerate that functioned similar to a private equity firm. So I performed the M&A function for them. So we were evaluating assets to purchase, as well as early stage technology companies that potentially could evolve into assets that could be purchased. And what I found in that experience is that we would come in, we would buy a company, and there would be pretty aggressive bottom line activities going on to cut costs to implement lean measures. And it was very much about retraction and it was very much exercise in in how to eliminate things. And I very much enjoyed more of the open innovation exercises when we were working with early stage technology companies. And the discussion was much more about growth, about channel, about customers, and about how to expand and accelerate technology. So when I eventually left that company, I chose to specialize more on the venture capital side of things where those questions are related more to growth as opposed to the private equity side of things, which can be growth related, but often it's a margin discussion. So ultimately, that's how I got into venture capital. And uh, clearly, my focus and my thesis is related to experiences that I've had in the past and sectors that I've worked in. So that's kind of how I got involved in angel investing. And then related to your question on why did I decide to do the podcast? Primarily, you know, when I started out, this is kind of a black box industry. Uh, it was a very 
confusing esoteric topic with not a whole lot of transparent information that was available on it. So I found I was learning the most from meeting with other people. The conversations I was having were really valuable for me. I figured if I recorded them and shared them with an audience, I could be valuable for them too. And then on top of that, I was looking for a way to expand my network significantly. So I had made the rounds in Chicago for about a year as an angel. I connected with a lot of the micro VCs, a lot of the angel groups, a lot of the deal makers, uh, incubators, accelerators, but I really wanted to leapfrog my network beyond just this one city. And one way that I thought I could do that was by creating content online and uh, trying to connect with a lot of people via that content. Naturally, most people will gravitate towards blogs and towards writing, but I didn't really think that I could compete against the, the Fred Wilsons and the Bradfelds <laughs> of the world. So, <laughs> um, but I realized, <laughs> right. But I realized nobody was doing the audio medium. And so I figured even if I was terrible as a podcast host, at least I'd be the only game in town. So, <laughs> so it was a good way for me to network with uh, guests, you know, connect with other uh, syndication and partners out there to get deal flow and share deal flow with guests that I've had on the program. And it was a great way to connect with people in the audience, both investors and entrepreneurs for similar reasons for deal flow and to uh, share investments and, and syndicate deals. Yeah, we love the podcast. So thanks for doing it. And you've had some amazing guests on there. And I've given a lot of insight into into this, like you said, a black box that uh, exists out there for angel investing. Um, you know, one of the things that we do at Inside Outside, we always so we we try to focus on what's going on um, in startups outside the traditional technology hubs or, or outside the the valley. So, can you sure. talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, in angel venture venture environment outside the uh, outside the valley in the Midwest? What's different? What's good? What's bad? What are you seeing? Well, I'm seeing a lot of good. I would say that ecosystems have developed and matured much more so in the past decade than they had in the previous two outside the Valley. Clearly, the Valley is still far ahead of any other ecosystem, be it national or international. So, you know, we're not trying to be the Valley here. We're just trying to be the best Chicago that we can be in the, in the best greater Midwest region that we can be. So, the good things about the Midwest in particular, the talent availability is is very strong here. We have very high quality universities uh, within close proximity to Chicago for tech talent, for a variety of different skills. So I would say talent is great. The availability of capital is strong. Uh, it's not nearly as strong as in the Valley, but we have a lot of sophisticated investors in other asset classes in Chicago and in many of the states surrounding Chicago. There's a big financial industry here. There's a lot of B2B commerce here in Chicago. So capital is, is really not an issue and it's not a restriction. Other great things get better deal terms and better valuation, I would say, on startup. And uh, you know, part of the reason for that is because they don't have to capital and the access to network and opportunities that they might have in, in a place like the Valley. So um, I'm finding that valuation ranges are much lower here. And the way that I look at that is I can get into more deals because uh, the price is cheaper for me. And, you know, deal volume is, is great here. Um, according to the 2014 Halo report, the Great Lakes region invested more dollars than anywhere else in the country, including California. So, there's a ton of capital being invested in the Great Lakes. Um, it's just a matter of connecting the right entrepreneurs with the right capital sources and making that happen. 
the drawbacks, you know, the, the organization and collaboration here is not nearly where it should be. The level of partnership between different types of investors, different groups, investors and entrepreneurs, and then other complementary ecosystem players is not on par with the best startup ecosystems. So I think we could do a much better job of collaborating and of organizing and coordinating our deals together. Hopefully, you know, my podcast program is helping in some capacity, even if it's minimal there. There's also less Series B players and beyond. So while we have some some good micro VCs, we've got some good seed and some good A players, uh, we're not going to have the big venture players at the later rounds. So many of the, the companies that really hit that growth curve and get to scale will have to go to the coast for capital. And then there, there's always the perception and the stigma that you have to be in the Valley to be a real player, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or an investor. And it's, it's just not the case. The ecosystem might be much more evolved in the Valley, but the traditional barriers to startup acceleration have come down significantly. And talent, strong networks, and capital exist in many more different places now. And those are the three major components that you need. So I very much believe that unicorns, non-unicorns, successful startups, whatever you want to call them, not only have they been created in places outside the valley, but we're going to see more and more of it over time. And what are you seeing are, are some of the reasons why this uptick in entrepreneurship and, and inv- angel investing in that has happened outside the valley? Is it is it a phenomenon based on um, you know capital or or talent or what are some of the drivers that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean the way that I think about ecosystems is sort of those three categories you mentioned a few of them. So capital, talent, and networks. Um, so the network really has to be connected. It's got to be collaborative and it's got to be organized. The capital has to exist and they have to know how to deploy it. So there's an education piece around capital and there's the opportunity and the availability of capital, which is important. And then there's the talent piece, as you mentioned. So there has to be strong talent. There's got to be strong young people that know how to hustle, that know how to work hard. And I think that's one of our competitive advantages here in the Midwest. In my opinion, this is not based on research, but there's less entitlement than maybe some other places in the, in the country. And there's a lot more hustle and a lot more willingness to work hard. So I think those three factors in combination have created much more opportunity here in the Midwest and, you know, people getting more educated and more proficient on how startup investing works, why venture is a great asset class. You know, the returns for venture have been fantastic uh, relative to the S&P 500, for instance. They've been over 20% over the past decade. So the returns have been there. People just tend to not know how to approach the industry and how to invest in this in a smart way because it's very easy to lose all of your investment capital uh, (laughs) if you're startup investing and you're not following some best practices. And that's some of the things we've seen here, even in Nebraska and that, where there's a lot of money out there, but it's been typically deployed in different asset classes, whether it's, you know, higher up the scale or real estate or farming or whatever, uh, or, or the traditional, you know, we're in Warren Buffett's neighborhood, so value investing. Um, and it's it's interesting to try to stir up um, interest in angel investors or in the venture space um, because of the, the, the nature of, uh, of the beast and, and people haven't kind of grown up with that as an asset class. Yeah, I agree. I personally believe it's sort of the next frontier of major investing. 
We've seen regulation passed that has not been yet implemented with regards to making this asset class more accessible to common investors. But whether that happens soon or not, I very much think that it's an attractive asset class that if managed professionally and done in an educated, knowledgeable manner is a great one to be a part of. And uh, I'm thrilled that I've been able to get involved in it myself. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about uh, founder strengths and, and weaknesses. What are you seeing with regard to founders here in the Midwest versus other areas? Uh, are they on par with the founders you're seeing outside of the valley? Or, excuse me, inside the valley? Or what are some of the differences that you're seeing from a founder perspective? So to be honest with you, I don't evaluate a tremendous amount of deal flow from the valley. We do look at companies that are out there. So I have a few mentors and a few syndication partners on the West Coast at some smaller venture capital firms. And we'll always look at, you know, the Y Combinator batches coming out and some of the 500 startups batches coming out. Um, Calacanus has his launch program. So... Uh, he has some quality companies coming out of that accelerator. So we will look at some of the accelerator companies, but those are already sort of a step ahead because they've gone through a pre-filter. Just to get into those programs, they have to be pretty special. So it's hard to compare apples to apples, you know, those firms versus deal flow that I've generated through my networks in Chicago. But on mass, I'm not going to say that, that entrepreneurs are better in one location versus another. Um, I think exceptional entrepreneurs exist everywhere. Uh, there's a higher volume of them in the Bay Area, and that's not just because they're homegrown there. It's because the Bay Area attracts great entrepreneurs as well. But I think you can find fantastic entrepreneurs anywhere, including Chicago or Nebraska. And, and that's part of my investment thesis and philosophy. So part of the reason I'm not evaluating a tremendous amount of founders from the Valley is because I'm looking for founders and entrepreneurs that are very special that aren't in the Valley where I can get good, strong deal terms, get proprietary access to that deal flow that maybe other investors aren't looking at and get my own advantage as an investor by doing that. Great. So what are some of the biggest areas of misinformation or confusion that you're still seeing out there in, um, in angel investing or from founders trying to raise capital? You know, I, th I think the biggest issues are there's a lot of startups that aren't doing their homework before they go out and raise professional capital. You know, the best founders that I've interacted with will come to me early on, but they come to me before they're raising capital uh, for advice, maybe advice on fundraising. What do you think of the business model? How are we positioned? Is this a viable idea? Is this an idea that we can raise capital around? Do we have the right team makeup? So I think it's critical from my standpoint for entrepreneurs to get involved with investors or sophisticated industry players that can help them understand what this process looks like before they, they go out to market and say, I'm raising capital. Uh, way too many entrepreneurs get filtered out of my deal flow process immediately because they're just coming way too early. They're not prepared. The team isn't structured correctly. They don't have enough runway to get to any sort of proof of concept or product market fit. Uh, maybe the founders have zero domain expertise in the in the market that they're playing. So there's just some key red flags that can pop up really early that show me that they're ill-prepared to accelerate the startup and to launch a legitimate fundraise. Coming too early is a big issue. I would recommend to any entrepreneur to withhold from having the I'm raising capital conversation until 
they've gotten input and gotten advice from at least five investors because those investors will help them position the startup and position their pitch so that investors are much more receptive. Great advice. Tell me a little bit about maybe what's the best story about uh, your own investing experience? Maybe the strangest pitch or the the most gut-wrenching decision you've ever made as an investor? Oh boy, the most gut-wrenching decision. You know, one of the toughest ones is the very first startup I ever looked at here. So I moved back to Chicago. I got together with with an angel investor that I respect here that was that was mentoring me. And uh, the first deal he had was for a, it was a social app that used for sharing wedding photos. So essentially a bride and groom could create a profile and then they could allow their attendees at their wedding to take pictures with their phones. And then all these pictures would get consolidated together and you know, the bride and groom could, could have all of these various pictures from the wedding. They could chat with their friends on there during the wedding, things of that nature. So this was one of three players in the market. There were, there were two other players that were well-established and well-funded. They were beyond Series A. You know, so they had large teams, robust teams. And I just did not see any differentiation for this app versus the competitors. The, the UI was a little better. The design was a little better. But from a feature standpoint, I didn't see anything that was really compelling that was better than what already existed in the market. Very first startup I ever saw. The founder came to me. So we met a couple times and uh, founder came to me and said that he got he was able to get a meeting with some corporate executives at one of the biggest wedding companies that exists. There's two big players in the market and it was one of them. And he got a meeting with them. And uh, he was asking me for advice on, you know, how to handle this meeting and we just kind of talked about basically mobile strategy. And I tried to work with the guy and help him craft a pitch to this corporate entity to uh, sell more of a, a holistic mobile strategy because this player had a great web presence, but had no mobile presence. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't get in, you know, any advisor shares or anything. I was just, I had passed on the investment, but I gave him some feedback on this meeting because I worked in M&A. So I used to be on the other side of the table with regards to these sorts of meetings. And uh, he ended up getting acquired. <laughs> so within three months of me evaluating them and saying no and passing on my first deal, which you know most people fall into the trap of investing in the first deal, um, I was trying to be disciplined and I passed on it. I didn't see anything truly unique, but somehow the pitch was great and this company needed you know a mobile presence and they needed an aqua hire of sorts. You know they wanted some young. Mm-hmm smart technology talent in-house. And so, you know, I missed a nice return on the investment. It wasn't a blockbuster acquisition by any means, but the valuation we were talking at this sort of pre-siege stage, it would have been a great returner. So that's one that's just kind of strange and odd that I kick myself for not thinking about it a different way or realizing sort of some return there, maybe through advisor shares, but that, that sort of stuff happens. Yeah, sure. So you've talked to a lot of investors and a lot of people out there in the industry that have been out there doing it for a long time. What are some of the, your favorite words of advice you heard from the people that you've talked to and interviewed? I had John Houston on the program, and he's a chairman emeritus of the ACA, and he's just one of the, the biggest figures in angel investing that I've ever come across. And he's also created some of the best content and, and advice on the craft of angel investing. But John had many different nuggets of wisdom when he was on the program. We we were talking about the topic of exits when he was on, but 
Um, one of the key things that he said to me that he learned was how to parse uncertainty from risk. That is something that has resonated with me. Uh, I think about this with regards to many different things in my life now, not just startup investing, but you know, with risk, there's, there's a risk and reward correlation. So with more risk, there's an assumption that you're going to get more reward. Whereas uncertainty is a completely different thing. That's just a distribution of outcomes that has a different likelihood of happening, right? And with startup investing, it's, it's much more about uncertainty. The distribution of outcomes is, is really wide and really hard to predict. It's not really about this startup investment is more risky than the other one, which makes it have more reward, that's not the case at all. There are sources of risk in this industry that have downside only. They have no upside. So um, so that was some advice that I thought was very valuable. Um, people ask me for my favorite guests on the program, and I've got a few favorite episodes, but I think the one that I find myself re-listening to and, and restudying the most is when I had Jerry Newman on to talk about non-unicorn investing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he talked a lot about the power law nature of investing and how you essentially you can't pick. You can't pick 10 investments to make and all 10 are going to be winners. It's more likely that the majority are going to be losers, but the ones that do work out are going to more than make up for the returns of, of the entire portfolio. His words about not being able to pick and this power law nature were made a big impression on me and and taught me a lot about sort of the issues that people have in this investment class by making too few investments, making their bet size way too high, you know, investing 50K, 100K in every deal until they've got no money left and they've only made five investments and they all fail. Um, you know, the, the counter to that is you've got people like Peter Thiel famously talking about how it's best to be a picker, to make very few investments and have tremendous conviction with each of those investments. But Peter is banking on the fact that he's a world's expert in particular technology trends and sectors. And he also has access to the preeminent experts in certain fields with the most domain expertise. And if that were the case, if we were all like that, you know, we're not just smart individuals, but we are the best, then I agree. Then, I mean, if you're the absolute best in the world at something, then I think you can afford to pick and pick a very small number of investments within that expertise. But the reality is we're not all going to be preeminent experts in every different sector and every different technology trend. So that being the case, there has to be some diversification and you got to have respect for the power law nature. For sure. So the last question, we always like to end with what can our audience do to help you? Oh, that's a good question. You know, the, the main reason I did the podcast is uh, to connect with more people, to reach more entrepreneurs and reach more investors. So, you know, the only thing I ask for people is if you're interested in investing or you want to share deal flow or you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to, to raise your round, um, just reach out to me. It's nick at fullratchet.net. It's pretty easy to get in touch with me. You can reach out to me on Twitter as well. I'm at the full ratchet. Just connect. If you're an investor, I, I'm happy to, to talk to you about what your thesis is and what your interest areas are so that we can, we can work together and help each other out. And if you're an entrepreneur, I'm happy to let you know quickly if it's not a fit for me and why. Or if it is, you know, I, I would love to, to help you achieve your goals and, and, um, and, and close a fundraise. So 
Well, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to Nick Moran for joining us this week. Reach out to him on Twitter and let him know how much you loved his interview. If you have a question for us, feel free to reach out as well at the IO Podcast. Also, if you have 30 seconds to spare, we would love for you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And while you're there, feel free to subscribe as well. Until next time, go build something big.